In 2016, Trinity Mirror, a UK newspaper publisher which owns the Daily Mirror, Sunday Mirror and the Sunday People, launched a brand new newspaper. The team came up with the idea after months of market research. Their research revealed that readers wanted a politically neutral newspaper, and to keep up with the speed of the digital age, the newspaper had been designed to read from front to back in just 30 minutes. Readers reported loving the new ideas, and the majority in market research said they'd buy it. It looked destined to be an instant success, yet three months later it shut down, racking up one million in losses. The CEO of Trinity Mirror, Simon Fox, placed the blame squarely on market research. He said, at the end of the day, what consumers told us they would do was very different from what they actually did. Today's episode focused on why the traditional models we use for marketing and market research might hinder rather than help our work. I'm joined by Richard Chataway, who explains how many of these models are out of date and not fit to accurately explain how consumers act. Richard is Vice President of the BVA Nudge Unit in the UK and is one of the most experienced behaviour scientists in the UK. He's also just released his first book, The Behaviour Business. It's a brilliant read that provides clear frameworks for practitioners looking to apply nudge theory and behaviour science to their work. To start off, I asked Richard to explain why classic marketing models like AIDA, which stands for Awareness, Interest, Desire and Action, why these models won't really help a modern marketer. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. The traditional models and the way we think about human behavior, like the IEDA model, you know, the, the idea that people go through this very logical process, very rational process before making a purchase decision of being aware of it and being interested in it then desiring it and then, then making that purchase is that everything that behavioral science tells us about our attention, you know, these non-conscious, more irrational drivers of behavior runs contrary to that. And those and that, that people do not behave in this kind of logical, rational fashion. The idea that people put as much thought 
an effort into buying a Mars bar as they do buying a house is just insane. Richard Chotton again he has a you know an example in in my book where he says you know the the idea that a consumer is standing in the aisle of a supermarket looking at a shampoo bottle deciding between two different brands of shampoo on using all these kind of rational factors um you know you'd think that person was insane if they were there for 10 minutes deciding what brand of shampoo to buy you know our our purchase decision making is much more instinctive than that and my colleagues at, at PRS in Vivo in, in BVA have, have done a lot of really interesting work around, you know, those more system one drivers of purchasing behavior. The implications for marketing are obviously that, you know, unless you have that understanding of those drivers of behavior um, and recognize that actually those purchase decision making processes are, are much more instinctive and less rational than we've than we traditionally assume, then your marketing is, is, you know, unless you take that into account, then your marketing is going to be limited in its effectiveness. The AIDA model implied that customers had to go from awareness to interest to desire before actually purchasing. And some of the world's largest brands have built multi-million pound campaigns around this model. But the trouble is, it's nonsense. People don't behave in this rational, linear fashion. As Richard says, consumers might buy shampoo because they recognise it, or because it's the cheapest, or perhaps because it's at eye level, not because they desire it. The problem with these models is they don't lead to a consistent, predictable success. Instead, they might work once and then never work again. This is one of the reasons why marketers are so keen to change approaches and try something new every quarter. According to the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, the average ad agency client relationship has dropped from 86 months down to just 30 months over the last 30 years. Simply put, we crave new ideas, partly because the traditional models and frameworks we implement don't have a consistent effect. But this bias for novelty and newness isn't the smartest rule to follow. Tropicana opted for something new in 2009. After years of looking at the same Tropicana logo, with the famous orange punctured with the straw, executives started to think it looked dated and old-fashioned. So after months of research and $35 million spent, the team released a rebranded Tropicana with a brand new logo and packaging. But the new design failed. Sales dropped by 20%, costing the brand $15 million in lost revenue, while competitors all reported significant gains. Tropicana reverted back to the old packaging within six weeks. How did some of the smartest marketers and brand managers and product designers and executives make such a large mistake? These individuals aren't idiots, they are very qualified and they have a huge budget to spend. The problem is, many of the models and methods that these executives were taught don't accurately represent consumer behaviour. One of the models used by the Tropicana team was brand archetypes. Archetypes are 12 different types of customers, for example, the magician or the caregiver or the jester. And these are used to help marketers better understand how a group of consumers might act. While thousands of marketers across the globe use these archetypes, Richard thinks it's just another model that's doomed to fail. You mentioned about the archetypes 
idea. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in my media agency career, particularly trawling through big data sets like the Target Group Index, you know, which is the, the UK's largest kind of consumer survey, building these pen portraits of um, of target audiences for use for our, our media strategy. So we would say things like, you know, our target audience are aged 35 to 44, live in the southeast of England, what, like watching Friends on TV and drinking at the Yates's Wine Lodge or whatever it might be. Now, the problem with that is that, you know, the more data points you take and the more examples that you use to build that pen portrait, the narrower that audience definition is becoming and the less uh, representative it's becoming. So, you know, there's, there's an example I use in the book where every year the, the, when the Australian Bureau of Statistics release their census data, they have a pen portrait of what they call the typical Australian. And what they've done is taken the average of multiple variables. So gender, income, location, et cetera, et cetera, to say the average Australian is a 36 year old woman who lives in the inner west of Sydney, uh, and who shops at this supermarket, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is, is that they do that and then there's no, and then they try and find someone to illustrate the article for it. And there's no one who fits that profile <laughs> because you've taken all those variables and you've reduced it to the, the mean and, and therefore that person doesn't exist. And, and the same is true of when you're building archetypes and pen portraits of audiences. If you build them in a way whereby you're taking the average of multiple variables is that you'll you'll end up targeting a fictional person. The models that many of us use to understand our consumers simply aren't accurate. They don't represent an honest view of our world. This ambiguity makes it really difficult to find common ground with other marketers. You've probably sat at a conference and a keynote speaker has said something like, consumers are changing faster than ever in a world where technology moves at breakneck speed. Marketers need to move fast to keep up. Now, it's almost impossible for any marketer in the room to argue with this. Technology is developing faster than ever, so surely my consumers are too. But in most cases, these lofty claims simply aren't true. The inertia bias, for example, shows that the vast majority of us are adverse to change, unwilling to try new things. On average, people in the UK spend longer in a relationship with their bank than they do with their husband or their wife. So what rules should we follow when trying to understand consumers and grow our brand? Well, Richard suggests following the advice of Byron Sharp and the findings from his book, How Brands Grow. If you want to grow a brand through marketing, and I would argue that is the goal of marketing, the goal of marketing is to grow your customer base to to attract as many people to buy your products. The most effective way to grow that is to make your product more attractive to as many people as possible or as many potential buyers of your products as possible. Therefore, if you're being obsessively niche in your targeting, you can't do that. The evidence base that they have is is to buy is to target what they call light users, so people who have who are you know maybe purchasing the products or service occasionally but not 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 often because they represent the largest base of consumers or potential consumers of your products and therefore if you can incrementally increase the chances of those people buying your products that will generate the the greatest growth for your brand yeah when we talk about it in behavioral science terms we we talk about satisficers and maximizers which is um, a term coined by by herbert simon around for most people in most of the purchase decisions we make on a daily basis we're comfortable with good enough we don't really have the time or the interest or the attention to spend hours 
as with that shampoo example, we don't have time or interest to spend hours poring over every purchase decision we make to make sure it's the best possible product that we buy to, to be a maximizer in, in his terminology. For that reason, what you're best off doing as a marketer is targeting those people for whom it's good enough. The light users, the people who who have a short often very short list of criteria um, that they're using to purchase their their, their products, um, many of which will be less conscious, more system one, less rational drivers. You're best off targeting those people because they are A, much more numerous, and B, the ones where you only have to have achieve a small incremental impact and it will actually lead to a lot of growth for your brand. Becoming excessively niche, focusing on archetypes, Well, concerning ourselves with a subset of our market is limiting, and it will limit marketing effectiveness. Instead, we should broaden our thinking and instead focus on the largest possible market we can target. To help get our heads around this, Byron Sharp gives the example of Coca-Cola consumers. Now, when we think of the typical Coca-Cola buyer, we think of someone who will grab a Diet Coke at lunch, who will have a bottle of Coke Zero at home in the fridge, But these aren't the typical buyers. In fact, they are a very small subset of Coca-Cola's actual buyers. Instead, the main majority, the vast majority of Coca-Cola buyers are very light consumers. 50% of their buyers purchase Coca-Cola just three times or less per year. So if Coca-Cola really wants to push the needle and change the bottom line, there's no point in targeting heavy users who buy 20 cans of Coca-Cola a year. Encouraging these buyers to purchase one more Coke will have very little impact on revenue. However, if Coca-Cola could encourage all of their light consumers to buy just one extra can of Coca-Cola per year, that would have a huge impact on the bottom line. And as Richard says, these light types of consumers are heavily influenced by heuristics rather than rational messaging, simply because they're such light buyers. So seeing a can of Coke with their name on it might actually shift behaviour. This idea that we should focus on light, heuristic elements of our marketing might sound like something that only works in cheap B2C products like Coke, but evidence suggests otherwise. Research by Gartner and Google looked at 3,000 B2B decision makers across 36 brands in seven different categories. This huge study found that personal value, like professional, social, emotional and self-image benefits was twice as important as business value, the functional benefits and business outcomes, even in multi-million pound business purchases. Clearly, we are influenced by nudges, maybe more than we think. Anyway, back to Richard, who gives an example of how he broke the trend of failed product launches and successfully launched the banking brand ING in the UK. So in terms of ING, I guess the, the ING example um, that I use in the book is is actually from quite early in my career. It was um, ING Direct was a brand that launched in 2003 in the UK as an online and and, um, and telephone only bank. And so what uh, was really insightful for that campaign was A, around how we could demonstrate or how we could cut into what was already a very competitive and very crowded marketplace, particularly as a brand that had no equity in the market. Uh, the the team I was working on, or that I, I joined to, to to work on that launch, and the the agency I joined, um, had built a strategy around you know how do we kind of convey that permanence and security, which is very important for a bank, obviously because these people are trusting you with their life savings, but also um, 
really cut through in the marketplace and and achieve what we call um, costly signaling, which is a concept from from evolutionary psychology, actually, which is around if you demonstrate kind of visible health or wealth or virility in in the kind of evolutionary world, then that will that is very beneficial. So Roy Sutherland has this great uh, phrase about it. Of He talks about the analogy of the kind of peacock's tail with costly signaling. Um, and he says, um, a flower is a weed with an advertising budget. If you have very visible spending as an advertiser, and that doesn't necessarily mean you actually, you know, are spending a lot of money. It just has to appear like that to, to consumers. What it conveys is kind of permanence, stability, effectively that it's a brand that you can trust with your money. So the way we did that as a as an advertiser was to launch the brand was was the focus was actually not on TV, but it was actually entirely focused on large format outdoor posters, you know, the big kind of posters you see at um, on the roadside at roundabouts and so on. And the reason for that was because A, they were completely unused by the savings sector, so we could achieve very high share of voice and, and cut through in that sector. And the second is because it conveys permanence, you know, it conveys that stability, you know, the, the, it looks expensive. The reality is, is to achieve equivalent reach through that medium versus TV, it's actually a lot cheaper. But but the, the physical nature of those those boards subconsciously communicated that kind of permanence and stability to customers. And again, it worked spectacularly well. The, the, the business achieved its annual targets within eight weeks. The customer base grew incredibly quickly. So, so I think you know the strategy, the costly signaling of of that approach was beneficial on a, in a number of levels. One, just because it it broadened the appeal of the bank. Two, because it communicated that kind of scale and permanence. And three, because actually the people it was most appealing to were the ones who were the better long term customers who could then who would stay with the bank for longer, and who also, frankly, would be, then be more likely to to purchase other products in the future, like mortgages and loans and so on. Richard explains that part of ING's success was simply due to costly signalling. By paying for so many out-of-home ads, consumers started to perceive that the bank was large, reputable and secure. This theory neatly explains why sports sponsorships are so effective. They demonstrate high cost and therefore create an honest belief in the strength of the advertised product. Richard and ING also achieved distinctiveness by using an advertising medium which was barely used by their competitors. But what if you don't have a huge marketing budget or a channel that's unique to market in? I asked Richard to share an example from his book which showed how KFC optimised their marketing message to appeal to more consumers than ever before without spending millions. This was for for KFC. As I say, KFC had an offer which was chips for a dollar. Very simple, very basic offer, um, you know, that you could get a packet of chips for, for one dollar, which is 60p, something like that in the UK. And what KFC wanted to know was was what was going to be the most effective way to articulate that offer to, to, to drive sales. And, um, and so what Sam and the team did was that they used uh, a variety of behavioral science techniques and frameworks to come up with i think originally it was it was like over 100 different articulations or close to 100 different articulations of that very simple offer of chips for a dollar which is insane when you think about it that there are that many ways to say such a simple message and then um and then what they did was they they tested those by running a variety of ads through facebook 
all with different iterations of that. Um, and from that, they were able to isolate the messages that were most I- effective, the ones that actually, you know, based on the engagement rates with those ads, the ones that were most compelling to people in terms of uh, ways to save chips for a dollar. Uh, the interesting finding from it was that the most effective way uh, to articulate that was to say uh, chips for a dollar limited to four per customer which is a really interesting behavioral insight in itself because firstly i mean it was it's basically a tnc it's the terms and conditions um but just just to make that more salient it kind of leveraged a bit of loss aversion scarcity bias i.e you know that we demand we we, we are more attracted to things that we think are in short supply. So the very fact that KFC are having to say, we have to limit this offer to four per customer shows that it's a really good offer and you have to hurry or you're, you're going to miss out on it. And and that proved to be hugely effective. They tested it in, in one market uh, with some radio advertising and, and it drove a huge increase in, in actual chip sales in that market. I found that study fascinating because of the sheer number of slogans tested. You might be forgiven for thinking that using the scarcity bias in your marketing is a good solution if you can't come up with something more creative. But this suggests the opposite is true. The 99 other creative ad variants failed compared to this well-known nudge. For me, this highlights how important it is to get a basic understanding of consumer biases and heuristics instead of following textbook marketing frameworks. Before I finished my chat with Richard, I asked him about the potential implications this has for market research. After all, if we had asked KFC customers, what slogan do you like the most? They would never select the one that limits their options to four bags of chips. So what are the limitations of market research and how do we avoid them? One of the issues is, you know, what people say is often very different to what they do. Um, and that's not because people are consciously deceiving or, or, or consciously deceitful or lying to, to people in market research. It's just because of the nature of human memory. There's always value in, in speaking to your customers and getting an understanding of what customers tell you. My friend, uh, Lee Caldwell, who's a, who, uh, is an expert in kind of more implicit research techniques. He has a great, um, quote that will get you 50% of the way towards understanding what's driving your consumer's behavior but you know why why would you not want to use techniques that will get you to 70 80 90 percent of the way towards understanding that behavior because then that's a significant competitive advantage for you as a business over anyone else and a lot of those techniques as i've explained are not necessarily cost prohibitive or difficult to implement you know we're not talking about wiring up people's brains with ecg machines or anything like that because actually you know the evidence base that that's effective is is pretty limited what we're talking about really is 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 getting to the difference between observed behavior and 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 seeing what people are doing and gathering data points on that versus just simply believing what they tell you in, in market research people don't act the way they say they will act Trinity Mirror's CEO realised this after launching New Day, and Tropicana's executives figured this out after their rebranding. The best example of this, however, comes from the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles. This organisation surveyed 15,000 respondents in 2010 and found that heterosexual women claim to have slept on average with eight men. Heterosexual men, on the other hand, claim to have slept on average with 12 women. This logical impossibility is the result of some people, mostly men, overclaiming and other people, mostly women, underclaiming in the data. 
clearly just asking people for their thoughts and their opinion isn't always best off. And where possible, it is much better to observe behavior. Today we've covered how many traditional marketing frameworks like AIDA and Archetypes don't accurately reflect our consumers. We've learned that if you're launching a product, a marketing campaign or a complete rebrand, you're better off targeting the largest possible market available to you rather than a niche. And we've learned that if you're conducting market research, you shouldn't simply look at what consumers say and instead try to observe behavior as well. Follow those three steps and your next product launch will be much more likely to succeed. I'd like to give Richard a huge thank you for taking the time to come on the show. His book, which is brand new, is really brilliant and honest opinion on how to apply behavior, science and nudges within your organization. So I'd massively recommend anyone who's interested in picking it up. I've put a link to buy the book in the show notes below. I'd love to know what you thought about this episode and if you get around to applying any of these nudges for yourself. So feel free to get in touch with me. I'm available on Twitter at Nudge Podcast and I'd love a review on Apple Podcast if you wouldn't mind leaving one as well. And if you haven't already, sign up to the mailing list by clicking the link in the show notes. Do that and you'll get an email every time a new episode goes live. All right, that's all from me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge. Nudge.